if there's one thing that I have done well when it comes to my firm and obviously the marketing company, it's knowing my own limitations, the things that I'm not good at, as well as the things that I just can't get to. There's just not enough time. That's why I'm so happy today that we're chatting with Randa Prendergast. If you don't know her, she's an experienced paralegal and task list developer extraordinaire. She has a legal background working with boutique law firms, solo practitioners, and even in virtual settings. She maintains excellent client and business relationship skills with well-versed office and project management experience. She offers a professional consulting support, paralegal services, and guidance while you grow your firm and or take your firm virtual. And if there's one thing that lawyers struggle with, it's this part. It's the adding on staff, training staff, creating systems, et cetera. So Randa, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Jordan. Is there anything that I missed from the bio that we want to talk about now? No, I think you covered everything. All right. Well, you wrote the bio or somebody wrote the bio for you. So hopefully it was, I figured it was good. Um, anyway. I would just like to add all encompasses that I am the attorney whisperer for that reason. There we go. I love it. All right. So um, we're going to talk about our last episode and then we'll dive deep into our topic today. So our last episode, uh, this was last week, we had Davina Frederick on. Davina talked to us about how to scale your law firm to $1 million plus with, and this is the key part, total ease. So Davina talked about you know the mindset it takes and some of the specific things required for that firm as you continue to grow to that level without causing yourself so many headaches. So along those lines, we're going to be talking about scaling, in this case, staff. We're talking about don't leave it to Beaver, and I'll have Randa explain why we went with that, how to succeed with the right staff. Like that is the key here, putting the right people in place so that we have that exponential growth that we're looking for, whether it's number of cases, whether it's the way we handle cases, whether it's just growing the time that you have to do everything else or have a life. So Randa, tell us a little bit about the June Cleaver role in your business. Absolutely. So um, my paralegal firm is called Mrs. June Legal, and it is from uh, June Cleaver from Leave It to Beaver. Um, I really am inspired by her, her elegance and how she presents herself, but she keeps everyone in line at home and she does it with grace and love, right? So um, the name of the episode is very fitting. Do not leave it to Beaver. In this case, I or the lawyer being Beaver and the person yeah. it should not be left to. No, it's, I, I always, I'm sure I've told this story a dozen times, but it bears repeating. So I started out as a state attorney. And I was, I interned there and I did trial team. Like I knew what I was doing for the most part, but ultimately I showed up to work on day one. They handed me like the 150 cases that were being called up today and sent me in a court on like 10 minutes notice. And we had a little bit of training, but like literally I was opening these files for the first time, figuring out when they were going to trial. And I remember being done with that and going back to my, uh, our staff member who was assigned to us. I believe she was a paralegal. Um, regardless, she was amazing. And I was like, hey, so what do I do now? And she was like, you know, nobody's asked me that question. And I was like, how long have you been here? And she was like, 20 something years. And I was like, great, I've been here like 20 minutes. So let's do it. And we are, I mean, this is at this point been, I don't know, 10 years. And like, we still chat every now and then. And it is so funny to me, to, I guess funny is the wrong word. It is so shocking to me how few attorneys make that step of asking their way more experienced, way more knowledgeable staff member, because that would be, I don't know, demeaning to our legal intelligence and whatnot. So. I'm super excited to have this chat um, and hopefully help more people get over that issue. Absolutely. Some uh, attorneys don't even know what paralegals do or that they are an option to help them, which is astonishing to me. So I'm very excited to even dive into what a paralegal is and what we can actually do. 
So and I think that's a great place to start because I know, I mean, obviously in, in Florida, and I assume this is nationwide, you can have, a, you can be a certified paralegal. There's different certificates and whatnot, but mm-hmm. really like what is a paralegal and what is a paralegal not, or what is not a paralegal? The easiest way to describe a paralegal um, is I'm like the nurse to a doctor, right? Like I can do everything an attorney can do except show up at court and give legal advice. So as far as training goes, I think um, it's important to have experience within law firms. That's the most important part. Certificates are great, but having that in law law office experience is really where you're going to get your bread and butter. You're going to find those rock star paralegals um, that know uh, what to do at all times. Um, I don't have, I have a certificate from Capital Law and a bachelor's degree from Ohio State, but I don't have any other additional certifications. Um, Depending on where you're working, it's not necessarily um, necessary. It is a good, uh, you know, resume builder. However, your experience within that space is more important. Um, So, it kind of leads into building out our workflows and task lists that we were going to be talking about. Um, Everything a paralegal can do traditionally can be done all in your workflow. And um, I like to reserve three to five tasks just for the attorneys. So if you think about a complete workflow of things to do start to finish and three to four tasks are just for the attorneys, that's that tells you how much we can do. When you say workflow, are we talking like the entirety of putting together a will or a trust? Or are we talking about like after this meeting, the workflow to get us to from the strategy session to the signing meeting? Like how in depth or how broad are we looking at when it comes to a a workflow? So I think it depends on the area of law. Um, But yeah, actually for both, you you would have a workflow for both of those situations. Um, I'm really well versed in family law. So when we I talk about workflow, it's not just from the start of the case to the end of the case. Yeah, that's one giant. That's like your 50,000 foot view. Um, you know, what's going to happen, but then you break it down further. Like if a client wants to file for a divorce, then you start with the complaint, right? And that takes you to a certain point. So within those um stages of the case there's individual workflows makes total sense so from the standpoint of i guess actually let me start here Mm -hmm. does it make more sense to have this workflow in place before you hire the staff or does it make more sense to hire the staff and then make the workflow together or does it really depend upon the individual situation um I like to have it done before the hiring of the staff. Um, I think that's what makes my paralegal firm unique also, because since I specialize in workflows, I try to build them out before placing your paralegal. So there is little to no training at all. I train straight through me and insert into your firm. Makes total sense. All right. So then in terms of a law firm trying to put together these workflows, Mm-hmm. Where do they start? Like, what, what what is step one in this process of getting our firm more organized so that we can expand? Sure. Um, I'm like a process girl. So I like to start from the very beginning, like the first time a client calls your office. 
all the way through the process of getting them their final orders. So um, I would start at the beginning of a case and the best way to do it is literally write down what you're doing as you're doing it through each step. And it sounds so mundane and it sounds like it's time consuming, but really it's going to save you in the long run to say, this is what we do first and then this is what we do second. Well, and especially with that going virtual, like you can, in essence, screen record while you're doing it and then you've got it together to work off of. Absolutely. Yep. And then I come in and fill in, I like to come in and fill in the details. I like to be very, very specific and detailed uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, one, you probably are doing a bunch of things that you're not realizing that you're doing, like uh, following up with the client or um, when you talk about filing a pleading with the court, how are you filing it? Is it e-filing? Do you have to take it to the court? So we get down and dirty with all those little details too. And then I also want to make sure that you are writing in all your follow-ups. If you're filing something with the clerk, the clerk that you're following up to get the timestamp copy and then sharing it with your client. Or if you're requesting documents from your client that you're initiating that follow-up to make sure to get what you need from them. Yeah, and I love that you're talking about doing it chronologically because like especially when we're you know working with firms to build out these systems in whatever program or whatnot, it's so much easier when you've got like, all right, I already have this information here, so I don't need it here. I don't I so I don't need to ask for it here. I already have it and kind of working that way. Yes. And I, you know, filling in and you know, looking at if how efficient they're being too. I don't like to wait to ask for discovery documents when discovery served on you, right? Because some of those timelines are very tight, like 28 days to respond. So if I know I'm going into a divorce case, like why not ask the client, hey, I'm probably going to need these documents from you at the, you know, at some point, you should start getting them to me right now. So we kind of take a look at how to be a little bit more efficient with collecting information too. Makes total sense. So as these lists continue to come together, do you have insight on like what you do with it? I mean, are we talking like it's a sheet of paper that gets checked off? Is it digital? Is it automated in a program? Is it different for every firm? So um, it, it can be different for every firm. Um, my case management software of choice is Clio. So I can, um, I can build them all out in Clio if that's what you have Clio manage. Um, if not, um, I've, I've also built them out in my case, but if a good old Excel worksheet, um, works just as well to, you know, label the task itself, the ideal timeline that you want it to be completed. Sometimes it's like a self, um, internal deadline that you, you know, the firm gives, you know, to make sure you're on track or sometimes it's a court deadline. Um, who's going to be completing the task and then how are they going to do it? I love that. So who, when, and how mm -hmm. all in one spot. That's great. Absolutely. Um, putting the details, how you're going to do something is important because we just talked about how you kind of do things without thinking about them. And then also if you are adding people to your team, it's a really good opportunity for training. You can, you know, give them a task um, or give them a step and say, this is how we do it. This, And those details can include like, this is where you can find the template to draft that complaint. This is where you're going to save that draft for attorney review. 
or this is where the questionnaire is saved. So you can use that information for drafting. So even putting in those fine details really cuts back on your training too. Yeah, it always cracks me up. Like we go to a law, or I guess really we go to any school and they're like, cheating is wrong. You can't copy off other people's paper, et cetera. And I get it. But then you come into the real world and they're like, wait a minute, you started doing this from scratch? Why not use the template? Why not use the form? Why didn't you use this? Like, oh my God. Uh, it's just one of those, you know, completely opposite from how we were taught to do so many things. Absolutely. And if you're not using some type of doc automation, it's really, really helpful to have like a templated folder. Um, you know, I, that's another efficient thing that I also suggest is, you know, let's set up these folders with the documents and pleadings that you're constantly drafting and you have them in one spot. And then that way too, if things change, if like court rules change or something, you can easily locate it right there in that template and then it's updated for everyone. Yeah, I love that concept because it's like, we are we are not, we are literally not writing these things in stone, but we're also not writing them in stone. And it is always amazing to me. Like we had one time, um, one of our staff members was like, hey, I read our address a ton. Can I just get a stamp? And like, sure <laughs> enough, we figured it out. We're like, okay, so if it's, you know, 10 seconds times 10 times per day, times whatever and it was like four days it was going to save with this stamp and the lifestyle you know it was that's just crazy. crazy that is yeah. so insane well because we do all the certified letters and you got to put it here and on the letter and on the certified and approve mm -hmm. this and do like it was just it was crazy to see how like a little thing like that and so we change it in the system and now you know everybody who's doing the mailing has the stamp with our firm address and name and whatever else needed to be on the stamp um yeah. and it just cracks me up but then we just went into Tetra and changed it like, okay, instead of writing it out, just use the stamp and, and here's how to order the more stamps or ink or whatever it comes out. Um, it's crazy. Well, and that's another good point too, is when you write out these workflows or these task lists, if something does change, this is your template to, and that's where you go and change that information going forward. So, um, and, you know, the best people to ask if it's not you doing it is the paralegal or who's actually doing those things in your office. Because you may think it's being done one way because that's how you did it one time, but maybe they found it in a more efficient way to do something, too. Or, you know, your state added e-service or you know something like that to get them into like 1985. But right. <laughs> it's coming along now with co two, year two years in the COVID. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I love that so much. So, and I, I think like, look, we've talked about the obvious ones, right? Like there's going to be discovery in these cases. There's going to be this part. Are there any workflows or any like consistent tasks that you find firms like forgetting about standardizing? Um, I mean, billing is mm. a huge one. Um, so most of my clients are solo and they're just very inconsistent with billing. And so um, having a workflow or procedure for billing has been huge. So just, um, and, and that includes like cutoffs, time cutoffs to have your activity and your case management software, and then set billing dates for your clients. Um, I think that is overlooked um, a lot, which, is crazy to me because that's how your livelihood and how your firm stays alive. But um, it seems to be a growing and going problem within uh, the legal field. Yeah, I saw an attorney post in one of the groups that it had been like, I don't know, it's five months, six months since they had last sent bills. And I was sitting there with one 
congratulations for you for staying open with no bills being sent out for so long, but also like you're going to set, there's got to be a client who's going to get like a $10,000 bill now that it's been six months. And that's a lot different than getting, you know, whatever it is, six, $1,500 bills uh, sure. when it comes to them, you know, going crazy. Do you have a preference between like monthly billing, biweekly billing, something along those lines? Um, so I do have a billing clerk um, with my firm and we recommend biweekly uh, with an evergreen retainer policy. So um, you are getting the clients getting smaller bills every couple weeks, you know, as opposed to um, having to refill a greater retainer. Um, a lot of firms are reluctant at first to do that. They, they, I don't know why there's such pushback against it, you know, because they're like, well, they just paid this retainer and then we're going to bill them two weeks. And I'm like, yeah, but wouldn't you rather get a smaller bill of a couple hundred dollars that you have to pay instead of saying, oh, please refill your retainer again to 5,000 and have to, you know, come up with all that money at once. Um, it becomes a little bit more manageable to your client too. And after a couple billing cycles, they are used to what they think they're going to be paying. So when you say evergreen retainer, like if the client pays $5,000, then two weeks later, you know, you send a, a bill for 500 bucks, you're moving $500 over from that retainer into operating account. And then the client's replenishing the $500. Yep. Yep. Okay. So you don't have any negative AR at any time. Yeah, that's the, um, that's the part. I mean, look, we didn't, most of us did not go to law school to run a business. We went to law school to be lawyers. <laughs> But ultimately, like it costs money to be a lawyer, to market, to run a firm, to handle cases, to file. And it's so crazy to me, like all these law firm owners. And don't get me wrong, I was one for a very long time who did not put me getting paid as priority one. But the more that you focus on that, the easier it is to give that one client an extra week. The easier it is to take that pro bono or low bono case. The easier it is to give a bonus to your staff. I mean, whatever it is, it really, everything's going to cost money. Absolutely. And also, yeah, you have more time. You're giving yourself a little bit more cushion to get out too. Like if you run your bill two cycles and your client's not replenishing, you know, at least you're not out complete, hopefully not a complete retainer, you know, and you can withdraw and move on. So um, that is the biggest thing with solos right now that I'm encountering. Some are really good at keeping time, but not sitting out their bills. And then right. some it's only picking and choosing the bills that they're sending out to the clients or they're not sending them at all. So definitely setting up that procedure and workflow has been lifesaver. I know when I, uh, when I did anything hourly, I was like, Oh my God, I need to be entering like at least $500 for it to be worth the like eight seconds for me to put this into the system. <laughs> Otherwise I'm never going to do it. And then obviously it adds up. I mean, and then you're looking at, you know, thousands of dollars that have not been billed uh, here or there for this or that, but it, it is what it is. I just, if you are, if you are listening or watching this and sitting there thinking that, you know, you are doing this out of the goodness of your heart and billing is wrong, then probably you need to go work for somebody else who's going to make you a bill, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. You definitely have to think about your law firm as a business, right? Like when I first start speaking with a law firm, potentially either for just consulting to set up maybe these workflows or and or the paralegal um, placement. My first question is like, begin with the end in mind. Like, what was your goal for starting your law firm? 
And why aren't you there yet? And a lot of it comes back to they didn't know how to run a business or they're not treating their law firm like a business. So we go into goals beyond their law firm and why they started in the first place to nail down how how are we going to change this for them? That's awesome. And it's like, it is amazing to me how we always talk like chronologically for so many things, but from exactly what you're talking about, that working backwards is so much easier to figure out. And then it look, becomes like, well, what do we need to do now to get us to the place, to get us to the place, to get us to the place, to get us to that place? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the two biggest needs always is billing and then someone to help with the legal work. You know, Makes so sense. it just depends on where they are. All right, so we're going to transition to more of the staffing side. Sure. But before we do that, is there anything else we need to talk about when it comes to the billing stuff, uh, coming up with the workflows, figuring out the task list, whatever it is along those lines? No, I think we pretty much covered it all. It transitions nicely to the actual staffing. So, All right. So then when do we bring in staff? When we finally have all this workflow set up. So um, I don't want to say finally, right? Because I, with my firm, I place senior level paralegals. So I make sure that uh, they definitely have the experience. And then they also have experience working remote, which I'm not finding a lot of people who don't have that experience because of COVID now. Um, but that is very important. It's hard sometimes for people to work remotely. Um, so when I place paralegals, I don't have just paralegals available on my staff. I don't just pool from whom, whomever is there or available. I think it's really important to meet with the firm and with the attorney and make sure that they're, um, they understand what a paralegal does and then they let me know what um, qualities are important to them and then approximately how much work they think that they have. And then I go out and I find that perfect person for them. Um, I feel it's important that they fit in with, you know, their culture of their firm. And that's kind of why also we talk about what are your goals too. Like if your goal is you want to travel and you want to hand things off to someone, I need to, you know, make sure that the person I'm hiring is, you know, motivated and a self-starter and pays attention to details and deadlines so you can be gone and not worry about that. Um, so we definitely have a discussion of what they're looking for first. That's such a good point. And also I like because you don't have the stable already in place, I don't whatever, whatever the, the word we want to look for this, you're not trying to make somebody fit a position. Instead, you're looking at the outline of the position and trying to find the right person that fits it. Yes, absolutely. And I do have some paralegals that I work with that have additional time, um, maybe to work with another law firm, but I still put them through the same process as if they're just interviewing with me for the first time. Um, so I make sure that they're still going to be a good fit, even though I know they're on my team currently. So along those lines, and also you mentioned the senior level paralegal. So what is, what is your definition or what is the position that you are best able to fill for a firm when it comes to putting that senior level paralegal in place? Sure. Um, I definitely look, look for five to 10 years experience, 10 years ex preferred, um, and then in that specific area of law, um, I try to 
get state specific paralegals, but you really ner like narrow your talent pool if you just stay want to stay within your state. Um, I've placed some really awesome paralegals out of law firm states, and they just you know have hit the ground running and had no problems. So definitely uh, ten years experience preferred. Can work remotely, and uh, the area of law matches up. But the most important thing is that they're detail oriented and communicate effectively. So when vetting for potential paralegals, um, I hold an interview with them and then I send them a test case if they're interested. That includes a deadline. And normally the test cases are pretty messy, like the information's out of place the formatting on the pleadings wrong, like all of the things that could kind of go wrong. And then um, I will eventually have another interview with them. It is truly that a uh, law school final exam that lets you brain dump the uh, everything you've learned over five or 10 years or more of experience. Absolutely. So like I give them a template, but a lot of times, you know, I've had clients where all the information about the client are on handwritten notes like sideways across the paper or on the bottom or so, you know, you get information about clients in all sorts, sorts of ways, you know, handwritten notes, a questionnaire, maybe a note um, on an email. And so you need to be able to locate that information and identify where it needs to go. I love it. It reminds me of the, um, the Curb Your Enthusiasm episode where he's dating the doctor and she writes him a note and he can't read it. So he has to go to the pharmacist to read it. Um, I can imagine the lawyer handwritten notes just being like the worst chicken scratch. Absolutely. But I mean, that's reality, though, too. Um, in some of our cases, that's what we get handed. So we need to be able to make the most of it. Now, it's progress, not perfection at this point, right? Like, Ultimately, it goes to the attorney for review and updates, um, and we just do the best that we can, but we have to put our best foot forward and make sure we get the information. So from the standpoint of this senior level paralegal, mm -hmm. what, what should a firm owner expect to pay for that level of help these days? Um, as a contractor, so not paying for any type of benefits or pay time off or paid holidays, um, or even training, actually, um, around $100 an hour. For somebody with the five to 10 years or more of experience in that practice area in that state or knowledgeable about the state? Um, it's pretty much a like, so I would say $100 an hour would go with the area of law and the 10 years plus experience. Absolutely. Gotcha. Makes total sense. So then obviously the firm would expect to be billing that person out at a higher rate. Yes. Yep. And within most states, that's pretty doable. Well, especially when you get one with that much experience. Right. And I say 95% of the paralegal's time is billable straight to your client. The other 5% is reserved for case review calls or meetings, uh, which they should be having weekly. Makes total sense. So then in terms of the, I don't know, size or revenue level of the firm that's coming to you to help with these workflows, to hire this person, is there a commonalities there size-wise? Um, that one's hard because if they're not doing regular billing, it's, 
it's kind of hard to tell where their current revenue is. Um, that's, that's true. It's like, hey, we made a low six figures last year, but we've got a thousand cases and we just don't bill on any of them. So Right. So um, I would say anywhere from the 250 to 500 right now, um, I have some firms that are about in that range. Um, and after implementing a paralegal and um, consistent billing and better processes, they're going to kill those numbers, you know. So starting out, we'll give that, I know that's a broad range, but it's kind of hard because most don't do uh, their billing efficiently. So makes total sense. And then, um, all right, so we talked about at that 250 to $500,000 range, that's where they're coming in to get this stuff done. How long is the process of working with you? How long does it take to get these things in place enough to find the staff, to get the staff going? So the staff, um, I try to place a paralegal two to three weeks. Um, it depends. Uh, sometimes if they have already some type of checklist or workflow set up, then we can do that quicker. If not, um, I always make that suggestion that we work on some of that first. So there's no training essentially when the paralegal starts. I The training would be getting to know your attorney, right? Like their nuances, how they like, you know, pleadings written. Everyone has their own style. So that's pretty much the most training they'll do. But um, it just depends on what they want too. Like I have firms that start that say, I just want um, a paralegal. And then we start working with them and how we're working with them is inefficient because they don't have anything set up. You know, so then we kind of go back to the drawing board and we, st we, we still try to push work to the paralegal to keep the legal side moving forward, right? While we start focusing on, you know, these processes. Um, so it just takes time. Sometimes I think that I'm going to be done with a solo firm or a small firm and they're like, no, you can't go, you know, and they find, well, we want to do this now, or can you hold me accountable to do that? So, um, you know, I, I've built my model so they don't need me anymore personally, but um, finding that it, that's not really happening. So that kind of makes me feel good. There we go. No, it makes a ton of sense. Um, so I want to transition into kind of talking about like tips you can offer a law firm owner from your perspective going through this. But before that, is there anything else when it comes to the staffing that we didn't cover? Um, you know, when you're looking at staff, I just want to reiterate to pay attention to experience and how detailed they are. Um, I think attorneys get too caught up on, um, do they have experience in my state or, you know, a lot of laws also transferable. Someone who's worked in civil litigation could really pick up in family law, you know. Um, so just to focus more on, you know, do they have in law office experience and then um, how detail oriented they are? Yeah, I always, experience is wonderful, but you don't want to let it override those skills, traits, personality, or culture fit um, because ultimately you'll be, you know, Sisyphus pushing the uh, boulder uphill the entire time if, if they don't meet those characteristics. Yep. So, all right. So now I want to transition into tips for the law firm owner. So from your perspective, 
doing the checklist stuff, putting, you know, as a paralegal, connecting these paralegals with firms, attorney whispering, what are the most common mistakes you see law firm owners making when running their practice? Um, I know, there's, there's just so time, many. How much time do you have? We have, um, uh, you know, 20 minutes. <laughs> okay, so, um, you know, we've touched on a lot of them already, but just not defining your process. And then also, I think the biggest mistake, though, what the which snowballs all of this is identifying your ideal client. Um, when you don't identify who your ideal client is, you're taking all these cases that you don't necessarily want or need. And I think that just snows snowballs into chaos, right? And trying to stay afloat. Um, but I, you know, knowing who your ideal client really solves a lot. Yeah, it's, it's so funny. So I talk about that all the time, because from my perspective, not enough people talk about that. And mm -hmm. I know I, I, Greg's laughing or ready to kill me because of how often I, I talk about the ideal client thing. <laughs> but it is so true. Because it, like, it lets you it lets you say no so much easier to bad marketing, bad cases, bad potential clients, bad potential staff. I mean, whatever it is, when you really have that core understanding of who you are trying to work with. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, I say no to clients or attorneys that are very demanding because they didn't plan properly. You know, I, I know that's not my ideal client. Now, will I offer some help to help them become more proactive than reactive? Absolutely. But um, you have to know exactly who you're serving or who you want to serve. And that solves a lot of problems. So. I know I can I can only imagine the conversation of like, hey, I've had my firm for like four years, and now I need to hire somebody tomorrow because I have too much work, and I haven't done anything to make my firm easy <laughs> to hire somebody in those four years. So like, Randa, please, please solve this for me like now. Yes, I mean we do. That's actually kind of our niche market is solos that have been in, um, you know, had their firm for that period of time, but they are over open minded to. Um, to change. They know that they need help. They know they need to make a change. So um, I don't work with anyone that approaches me that says, can you just place a paralegal and, you know, are not open to the conversation of anything else. So. Makes perfect sense. All right. So finding the ideal client and obviously setting the firm up to be ready for the help. Um, any other big ones that stand out? Um, communication is really going to be key if you're going to try to onboard anyone, um, being responsive to, you know, task, if, if you have a workflow, you know, set up or just emails and questions. Um, we can do a lot, but ultimately we cannot read your mind. And then also we can't sign those pleadings to get filed. So, um, being, a good communicator or responsive is going to be really key to be successful. And it always cracks me up when, I mean, obviously I, it cracks up is probably the wrong word, but in terms of lawyers who get in trouble with their bar, there are, you know, truly bad things that you can do to get in trouble. There's trust accounting issues that you can have to get in trouble, but then the most common mm -hmm. one is the lack of communication. And so mm -hmm. it always, like, it is always difficult for me to have attorneys be, tough to get in touch with 
when you realize the, re the responsibility that we have to clients to be accessible. Absolutely. There, you know, it, and because of those lack of communication skills, you know, I've fired clients over them because I'm like, you have a duty and a responsibility to your client that you're not upholding right now. And I've done everything in my attorney whispering power to help you do that. And it's not happening. So, um, you know, I've parted ways because of that before, unfortunately. Makes total sense. I mean, and, and along those lines, especially combined with the last one, do you find most attorneys to be trying to hire too late or do you find trying to hire too early or right on? Too late, probably a little too late. Absolutely. Um, nothing that it's not fixable, but there has to be a willingness you know, to, to get it fixed. Um, so that happens too. Like you can't just throw your law firm at someone else and say, fix it. Right. That's not my law firm. It's your law firm. It's, I'm not the attorney. I'm not, um, representing your clients. So you have to take that pride too. Um, so probably a little too late, but nothing that I, I haven't seen that's not fixable so long as they're willing to put in the work. Yeah, I mean, I always, I, I see it a lot, I guess, from the marketing perspective, there's a third issue. But what I hear a lot from attorneys, not from a marketing perspective, is the, I don't have the time to hire somebody, even though I need somebody. And then it's like, well, then you're never going to have the time to get somebody else to get enough stuff off your plate to have the time to do anything else. You're always mm -hmm. going to be stuck in this cycle. Yes. Yeah, so they need to put the first things first, like the important you know, they're being reactive, reacting to anything that's in front of them, right? But they need to put the important not, I call it non-urgent, but in this case, it would be a little urgent work in their law firm. And that would be, you know, creating those task lists, doing your billing, um, you know, on a regular basis. So if it's like a sink or swim type of moment for them, you know, either you're going to decide, hey, I'm going to do this and swim on, or I'm just going to stay where I am in my own habits and, and continue to sink. So the best way to address that is um, for me, when I work with clients is I set time with them. They have to answer to me every week and I give them small things to do in between. Hey, I need A, B, and C from you by next Wednesday in order for us to move forward to the next step. Yeah, that is, well, it's like, as somebody who has been through this completely as an idiot, not doing it correctly, more cases or more staff or a larger firm is really just, you know, kerosene. And if you are a dumpster fire, it's just going to make everything that much worse. Yes. And you'd be surprised a lot of times, Oh, and they come and they say, I need a full-time paralegal. And I said, I bet you don't need a full-time paralegal. I bet you need a really good part-time paralegal and then to improve your processes. And a lot of times they think they need 40 hours and it's really 20. Once Makes total them. sense. Mm -hmm. All right. So as we get... Uh, more or less towards the end. Is there anything else you want to make sure that we cover and talk about? Calendar control. Okay. For sure. Absolutely. So um, 
a really fun tip. I don't know. I don't know about all the other schedulers out there, but I currently use Calendly. And, um, you know, we kind of talked about those important, not urgent tasks. Putting those tasks on your calendar um, and not just saying like working on my law firm or whatever, like being specific and putting on your calendar, like, um, you know, I'm going to draft my complaint workflow. Like, what do I do when I'm doing a complaint all through and then through service? Putting that specific, like being specific on your calendar and holding that um, appointment with yourself to get those things done could be really helpful to you. And um, to find the time on your calendar, if you have Calendly or a scheduling type of software, create a link, an internal link that's just like an internal work block. I do this all the time. I have a 30-minute one and one-hour one and a two-hour one. And I utilize that to schedule this time with myself. And the reason I do that is it quickly identifies my open time because looking at a calendar can be overwhelming, especially if you have a lot going on. And then I can't see what's scheduled before it or after it. So it helps me to not deter from scheduling time. Like maybe, maybe I'm like, well, you know, I'm just coming off of this call. Maybe it wouldn't be a good time to schedule it. Like I just schedule it and it's on there and I hold myself to it. Now we're human. I don't always do, but then I reschedule it, obviously. Um, or I make, I, I tell someone, like I tell my admin, hold me accountable. Like ask me next Tuesday, Randa, did you do this? And um, that's been very helpful to get those those type of tasks done. Yeah, I never I never thought about that second point about the that way you're not worried about what else you have around it. But that is such a strong point. And then I guess obviously, I mean, I know like um, for for Greg, we have to build in buffer time between shows because we have to swap things over to get the show ready and whatnot. But obviously, in those circumstances, the auto booker would know the you know would know the buffer time by the event and then not let you book anyway. Mm hmm. Yep. Yep. So you can definitely use those things that you're already paying for to your advantage. You know, I, I use it when I'm with my children and I have to schedule their doctor's appointments, you know, to find a quick time. It's just time saving overall. Makes total sense. All right. So I want to talk about our next episode and then we'll dive into your biggest takeaway. But is there anything else you want to make sure that we address before we start wrapping this up? I think that's it. All right. Awesome. So our next episode is going to air on March 14th. So that is in next week at 2 p.m. So that would be now. Uh, same time as this episode next week, we have Melanie Lippman on. Our topic is clothes maketh the brand, how to dress for success. And Melanie is going to go over basically the wardrobe of a successful attorney. I hope uh, Hawaiian shirts will make the list and I won't just be berated the entire time. But if so, you know, I'll learn something. And uh, for those of you that have followed the show, this is an authentic Hawaiian shirt. I bought it in Hawaii. It was made in China, but I bought it in Hawaii and therefore it is an authentic uh, Hawaiian shirt. So we'll talk about clothes next week, March 14th with Melanie Littman at 2 p.m. All right, Randa, you have shared so much here. We have tips on billing. We have tips on workflows, staffing, the numbers, some feedback on the biggest mistakes attorneys make, but we're going to get a little bit more out of you. 
So if somebody has been listening for the last 45 minutes and they remember nothing else that we have shared except for this one thing, what would be the biggest piece of advice, the diamond nugget of wisdom, the most important thing for an attorney to take away so that they can be the exhibit A of a successful attorney? Whatever process or whatever you're doing in your law firm, write down how you do it. As simple as that. I don't even care if it's just like a one-liner, a one-line checklist, you know, one, two, three, because you can always get the details. But as long as you capture the entire process, write it down. If you ever want anyone to be able to come in and help you in, within your law firm, you definitely need to have that starting point. Yeah, I mean, I, I will echo that. That is the foundation to grow everything else off of, because otherwise... Mm -hmm. It is chaos and anarchy. Absolutely. Cool. All right. So for people that have listened to this, that love what you have to say, that want to stay connected with you, what is the easiest or best place for them to reach out? Sure. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can look up Randa Prendergast or Attorney Whisper. Both should pop up. Um, or you can uh, email me at randa at mrsjunelegal.com. And um, I'm also part of the Ohio State Bar Association, and I write some articles for them on occasion so you can catch some of my content there. There you go. Awesome. Everybody else, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you have a wonderful week. We will thank see you. you next Monday for an episode with Melanie Littman. And then just announced uh, the following Monday, so March 21st, we're going to have a webinar in our Solutions for Lawyers by Lawyers group. We're we going to talk about the differences between Disney, Universal, SeaWorld, and a traveling carnival, figure out which one your law firm is, and explain to you how you can use that going forward to grow the right law firm for you. So it should be fun, I hope, uh, knock on wood. And if you join us there, as well as with this episode, you can ask your questions live. With that, have a wonderful week, everybody. Chat with you soon. Thank you.